After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Baseball America podcast. Baseball America, bringing you baseball news you can't get anywhere else for more than 35 years. Now it's time to talk baseball. Hey, welcome everyone to a Baseball America podcast. I'm John Manuel along with J.J. Cooper. As usual, uh, coming to you daily now here in the fall and the off season. Uh, started with our postseason, now taking you through all the top tens. Uh, we're kind of backtracking a little bit to the American League East. And a couple weeks ago, Steve Molusky of uh, Mass and Sports was kind enough to write up our Orioles top thirty this year and did the top ten online, did the chat online, and now we're wrapping up with Steve here with a uh, podcast. And Steve, uh, really excited to have you join us. And kind of getting back to your radio roots, right? That's for sure. Yeah. How how you, how you guys doing? Um, great to be with you. Yeah, John, I mean, you and I, maybe that's where we first uh, interacted for a few years in Baltimore. I was the sports director at WBAL Radio uh, from like the late 90s through 2003. And uh, several years later started working for uh, Masson, which of course is a television uh, rights holder for the Orioles, Mid-Atlantic Sports Network, and the website MassonSports.com. Um, you know, is a, is a full-functioning website, kind of even independent of the broadcast. And we have writers who cover both the Orioles and the other team that Masson uh, uh, televises to the Nationals, who really pretty much full-time, year-round. I mean, we write in, in, in the web business, as you know, uh, stories can seem old after they've been there for two hours. So we're writing constantly, uh, even into the off-season, and uh, fortunately for all of us, there's a lot of baseball interest, even when there aren't baseball games. Yeah, I guess that, that was going to be one of my big questions. Is, I mean, you've been in that area a long time, uh, kind of born and raised in, in, in Balmer in that area. But um, it does seem that the biggest thing about the last five years, Steve, and I'm seeing this through the prism of my, you know, I have a, a sister who lives up there and is a partial season ticket holder. But to me, you know, when we used to go up there and visit, and we would go to Orioles games, it would be the visiting fans, you know, Red Sox or Yankees fans who kind of took over Camden Yards. And the main thing that Buck Showalter and Dan Duquette have done is uh, woken up a passionate fan base, and now in the 25th year of Oriole Park at Camden Yards. And when you go, it's Orioles fans who are packing that place, not the visiting fans anymore. Is that the biggest change in the last five years, that the success that Buck has uh, brought back to Baltimore? Well, I, th- I think so. I mean, credibility and winning, and I mean, the Orioles uh, bragged, and rightly so, that they have more wins in the American League than any team since 2012. And I mean, there was a time 10 years ago where that seemed a, a pipe dream to Oriole fans because uh, they had 14 straight losing seasons, you know, until they finally got that thing turned around in, in 2012. 
And ever since, they have not had a losing season. One year, a couple years ago, 500. So three playoff appearances. It's been good. It's been different. It's been much more fun to cover and be around. And, and I think we really saw the passion of the Oriole fans during those losing seasons because they threw pretty well. I mean, they were nowhere near the top. But they still were drawing 1.7, 1.8. And I, I would be hard-pressed to see too many franchises lose for that long and see if anybody was in the ballpark. So they still had interest. They were just dying for a winner. And uh, finally, around 2012, uh, it, winning baseball returned here. That's a, that's a great way to put it. It's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to uh, remember now. In the last five years, the Orioles have been relevant. But 14 straight losing seasons – that was a long time of really where they just were never were really never in it. And, you know, part of that was you had these long-term players like a Brian Roberts uh, who suffered through a lot of those losing seasons, uh, Nick Marquet, because she did have some homegrown guys. But a lot of times during the end of that stretch, Steve, the kind of the future hope of the Orioles was pinned on a lot of pitchers, uh, you know, Jake Arrieta, Chris Tillman, Brian Mattis, Kevin Gossman. Uh, those and Zach Britton, kind of those five guys were these top pitching prospects. And toward the end, tail end of that, you got Dylan Bundy joined that. Um, kind of the story of the Orioles still is tied in some ways to some of those pitchers. The guy who's turned out to be the best big leaguer out of all those guys, as far as a starting pitcher, has been Arietta, obviously in a uh, in an ill fated trade. Uh, now he's won a World Series in Chicago. But still, uh, a lot being put on those uh, some of those homegrown arms, and the last of those guys, the last two of those guys were, were Gossman and and Bundy. And you finally had Dylan Bundy after four or five years in a row of him being the number one prospect break through this season. Let's let's talk about that so we can transition to the prospects. What do you see out of Bundy this year, and what expectation do you think uh, do you have or do the Orioles have for him in 2017? Well, I, I think, John, and, and, and you know, he was ranked the number one prospect even when he was hurt. Partially, that was because of the vast potential we saw in 2012 before his surgery, uh, when he had a tremendous year on the farm, was one of the top prospects in baseball, and partially because the Orioles didn't have anybody better. Uh, so that was tied to that a little bit. But um, he finally got the help. Uh, and, you know, it's a long road for Bundy because right if you go back to, let's say, May of 2015, I saw him pitch at AA. He looked really good. He was getting back. He was touching 96. He felt great. And then he had a rare shoulder ailment. After all he went through with the elbow, he had this crazy shoulder, the terrace muscle, or whatever they call it, which even Dr. Andrews said is just incredibly rare. And so he overcame that, and he came to camp in 2016. He could not be optioned. He had to make the team. Uh, so really, Buck Showalter said our worst fear would be what if He's just not good enough, and we have to carry him on the roster all year. Well, they started him in the bullpen. He pitched really good. I was at Dodger Stadium the game this year. I think the best, best I've ever seen him pitch in the big leagues. He struck out seven batters and two and a third. Every out he got was a strikeout. His stuff was electric, and it's no coincidence that it wasn't long after that he moved into the rotation. And, of course, they had to baby him because they couldn't load a lot of innings on him. Uh, but he was still really good. And then I think the only time he wasn't that good was late in the year. And I think he simply tired the innings. He hadn't pitched so many, you know, so few innings in, so, in the last few years. But I think they saw the, uh, the glimpses of what he could be. And so right now, Ordo fans are dreaming on Bundy and Gosman because they saw flashes that these two 
could be top of rotation guys. Will they be number ones? Who knows? But but we saw potential for them to be a one or a two and group them with Tillman. And they feel like they have finally have the makings of potentially a solid rotation. That would be two-thirds homegrown. And Tillman is a little bit homegrown because they acquired him when he was sort of on that cusp of making the majors in a trade with the Mariners. So they uh, they got to be excited about Bundy, and I think with good reason. Yeah, and I guess – does that inform the way they view Hunter Harvey at all? I mean, I'm jumping around a little bit, but he's the number four prospect. It seems like it's a natural kind of tie. I mean, like a couple of years ago, the Orioles' top pitching prospects were Bundy, Eduardo Rodriguez, Hunter Harvey. They traded Rodriguez for Andrew Miller. We saw in this postseason how good Andrew Miller is. And, uh, you know, the Indians gave up a lot to get Andrew Miller as well. Obviously, he has club control still. But yeah, the Orioles gave up a decent amount to get Miller and Eduardo Rodriguez. But you have Bundy graduated, Rodriguez gone, Harvey's the last guy, and now he finally had Tommy John surgery. I mean, we probably aren't going to know really what's going to happen. Like what we aren't going to get a fair read on Hunter Harvey till 2018, most likely, right, Steve? I mean, is that kind of? Uh, no, and, and I think I, you're right. Yeah. His surgery was, uh, I believe, June, July-ish. Uh, so if you project 12 months forward, when maybe he can get in a game, which is about when Bundy did it. <laughs> You know, your midseason next season. And as we know, that getting in a game doesn't mean pitching a double A or five innings or triple A. It means an inning here or there in the Gulf Coast League or Delmarva. And then kind of, you know, trying to build up a few innings and then maybe get them to a little bit of a higher level later in the year. And then have a full winter of hopefully normal health. And then you kind of go at it. So, yeah, I think 2018 for him to possibly make any impact or have all the stuff back is probably the only, you know, reasonable at this point. So it's going to be really tough to know. <laughs> Hunter Harvey's going to be on this list we'll, next we'll be, year. We'll be talking about this again next year, you know, <laughs> and it'll be about the same thing. Well, and I, I do, and, I mean, and you know, in covering Dylan Bundy, guys, I really got a firsthand look at exactly what they say about the comeback from Tommy John surgery because I saw him many times on the farm when he first saw him, he's 92, 93, and you're like, oh, boy, is the velocity going to come back? And then you see him a couple months later, and he throw a couple curveballs, and you go, wow, that looks like the old Bundy. But then the next curveball would get lined for a double in the gap. And so basically what you saw is what they say. It, it takes time for both the velocity and the command to come back. And you see glimpses of it, but not the consistency of it that I think he finally showed in 2016. Uh, you know, it's all behind him. And now I think, uh, you know, the good Lord willing for that kid, I'm talking about Bundy, it'll be health and just building up innings to where he's a one day a 200 inning pitcher. Um, and so, but I definitely saw with Bundy how you see the velocity pick up and it takes the time and you see the command uh, inconsistent and then start to get a little better and then a little better. And then finally you get a product that can go to Dodger Stadium and, you know, blow the Dodgers away. I kind of feel like with Hunter Harvey, if there's any silver lining to this, I mean, because this has been a very long path, but he can continue to focus on growing into a body that, you know, can handle more innings. I mean, that that's always been kind of one of the Hunter Harvey concerns, has it not? That he just, he's a small guy. and Skinny guy. Skinny guy. Really skinny guy, I should say. And this is, you know, that's still kind of on the to-do list, and he has another year where basically the biggest thing he can do is work out, rehab, and, and get kind of bigger, I mean, get stronger. 
Exactly. I mean, you know, Oriole fans question why didn't they do the surgery sooner because he went through the flexor mat and a PRP and rest and rehab and come back and had a setback. Then he had a shin injury. He got hit by a comeback in spring training. It was one thing after another for this kid. And, you know, then you're looking at his background and you're thinking, you know, the son of a major league pitcher as Tommy John. Clearly, this kid was not overused as an amateur. His dad would not have allowed that to happen. And when I saw him pitch in Delmarva, his first uh, uh, full year, he looked every bit a top prospect. I mean, I was at the Purdue Stadium the night, I guess it was, boy, it's, it's a long time now. Maybe it was 2014. I'm trying <laughs> to remember when I saw. I think it maybe was top. 14 and 13. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no, it was he first round. I was a first rounder in 13, so it was probably 14. 14. But the matchup that night at Purdue Stadium was Lucas Giolito and Hunter Harvey in the South Atlantic League. I went to that game, and that night they looked like equal pitching prospects. I mean, Giolito, we know what he's, you know, he just continued to progress and made the majors, and that probably was the path Harvey was on had this not happened. So. He's got a role model right there in Dylan Bundy. We all know surgery. This surgery is often successful. It's just that the constant delays were faced more now because you can't rush the comeback that, that Harvey's going to have. But uh, there's his role model, Dylan Bundy. As Buck Showalter likes to say, it's delayed, not denied, and his day will probably come. And then the Orioles can really dream on it. Bundy, Gosman, Harvey, maybe Sedlock is ready by then. I mean, if, you, if finally they start hitting – on some of these young pitchers, and we know that's where you save the money. If you get a really talented pitcher who's making the minimum for a couple of years, now you really got something because you have some payroll flexibility and a talented youngster that you hope you'll have a long time. Well, that's one of the things that striking, striking to me, Steve, as we talk about the Orioles' prospects, is that they do have guys, but in terms of depth, and especially upper-level pitching depth, it's thinned out, and the guys that and they, the, you know, the, these days most teams seem like they need a sixth and seventh starter. They're always going to call on those guys. And right now for the Orioles, that's pretty much Tyler Wilson and Mike Wright, uh, who both graduated as prospects. Because outside of them, the only starter that you have or that we have in the top ten who's going to be healthy in 2017 and is above full season and is in full season ball, you know, is Chris Lee. And he was injured, uh, didn't pitch – uh, tremendously, uh, he pitched 51 innings this year, got off to a great start. He's smallish. And then there's this kind of moving target of the injury with him where it was earlier taught, called a lat strain, then a shoulder strain. He's a pretty big X factor in this organization, is he not, going forward for 2017? Like, if, if they need help, homegrown help, outside of Wright or Wilson, Chris Lee's the most likely candidate if healthy. Is, is that a fair statement? That probably is, and I think uh, as people in the organization have told me, had he stayed healthy, almost no doubt he would have found his way to Baltimore in some way because he got added to the 40-man last year. He, uh, he's a, a pitcher with options, which the Orioles love to bring guys back and forth. And even if it had been in a little bit here, a little bullpen, go up for two weeks, go back, uh, he would, probably would have been in that mix this year had he stayed healthy. I'll tell you another name that is on their radar and he's Rule 5 eligible, is Joe Gunkel. The yeah. They acquired from the Red Sox, who has appeared in the top 30 for the Red Sox and might have a chance this year for the Orioles. And they like him a lot. And he's kind of a, and compared to Tyler Wilson in his pitching style, he doesn't throw hard, he sinks it. He's, he's excellent command guy. I mean, it's a 1.5 uh, walk rate per for his career. 
and they know he's going to throw strikes, and he's poised and not bad for, I think it was an 18th-round pick. He's on their radar. The question is, do they protect him? Do they risk losing him? Would anybody take him if he's available? But if he's a triple-I next year, then he's another depth guy to kind of link them, you know, hold the fort down while they wait for Lee and Sedlock and uh, Peralta on the next wave to start pushing forward. Yeah, he's the other guy. I mean, he's in the top 30. I won't. Uh, you have to buy the prospect handbook to see where and what the report is. But, I mean, 1.2 walks per nine, and he did lead the organization's minor leaguers in innings pitch this year. So that is the other guy who seems like he's a factor. I, I can't imagine uh, – that would be a guy I would imagine you'd protect because those are guys that do get picked in the Rule 5. They don't always work out in the Rule 5. But, you know, if there's nobody who knows the Rule 5 better than Dan Duquette. I have nothing to teach Dan Duquette, neither does J.J., no. about the Rule 5 because uh, they have made picks every year that have stuck – whether short-term or long-term, whether it's Ryan Flaherty or Joey Rickard or uh, McFarland, TJ McFarland, left-hander. I think I'm leaving somebody out. But they've... But they are they are as good at dealing with the Rule 5 and finding value in the Rule 5 as anyone, really. Yeah, it's, it sure seems that way. Um, I think so. I mean, J.J. knows this better than anybody. I think they were ahead of the curve here because isn't it true, J.J., that last year there were, were there more Rule 5s than ever or the year before? Like two years ago was as good a Rule 5 year as far as guys sticking as any in the, I would say, kind of the modern era. Cause yeah, the Odebell Herrera, Delano to Shields class. Right. You had, a, you had uh, I believe it was 11 guys. I, technically, we can't say 11 yet because we still have Danny Daniel Winkler. Winkler, who is still, the Braves still have him, but because of injuries, he's yet to reach the uh, 90, you know, the half season of, of active service time. But 10-plus uh, Winkler. Last year tailed back off a little bit, but even still, we still did see Tyler Goodell, Joey Rickard, uh, Angel Perdomo, uh, a, a number of people. Luis Perdomo. Luis Perdomo. Not Angel Perdomo. That's Blue Jays. We're talking Blue Jays yesterday. Luis Perdomo. We saw a number of guys stick. And so it is something where, again, I, I part of what I say now, and this could be useful for the Orioles going into the, 20, the 2016 Rule 5 draft, is there's so much... There's so many power arms now, you can't protect them all. And so if you're looking for a power arm reliever, there's going to be a number of guys, especially when you see what Joe Biagini did this year as a starter who moves to the pen and all of a sudden has a plus fastball. Yep, yep. I think you're going to see yeah, more. I'll tell you another, another thing that's good about a Rule 5 guy, and then I'll bring up a name that's in the order organization, is if you get him through that season, a power arm, now, and again, we know the Orioles and most teams love a guy who has three years' worth of options. That's what you're looking at. Right. And the Orioles had that in Jason Garcia. Exactly. Who, he is a guy who, uh, if you're just going to look at his stats this year at AA, they were modest. There's nothing that, that jumps out at you. But several people who saw him pitch in the second half at Bowie said he made major gains. It was great to have him be in the rotation the full year. He's definitely on their radar next year as someone who could they'll probably start him to, for pitch development and and to have the option to bring him to Baltimore in the pen or in as a starter. And he was touching 96 and 97. He's got a live arm, as we know. He made some real uh, strides with Alan Mills there at Bowie, especially late. And I have people tell me late in the year he's put on the ball as well as anybody at the higher levels. And he almost was called as well. So um, 
here's a Rule 5 guy who's got a couple of years' worth of options left for the Orioles. That's a that's a great point. Uh, you, we need to get you and Matt Eddy on a podcast to talk about rules and procedures and options. And it's so important to all these major league clubs that uh, lengthen and deepen their big league roster the way bullpens are used these days. And uh, really, I don't think anybody does it better than, than Buck Showalter. And clearly, Dan Duquette uh, works hand in hand in hand with him on on that roster. I guess uh, I don't want to make a, a negative connotation, but that roster manipulation. I think a lot of right. a lot of teams do it. The Mariners did it this year, and they almost made the playoffs as a result. Um, I wanted to point out something else from the top ten where you made, I think, a comparison. I'm not even sure. I think it did get in the print edition. Uh, maybe not. But you made a comparison of a player, uh, of Ryan Mountcastle, the 2015 supplemental first-rounder, had a really nice year uh, at Delmarva, number three prospect in the organization, played the whole year at shortstop at Delmarva, and then Trey Mancini, who finished the year in the big leagues uh, and hit three home runs, lickety split in the big leagues, uh, only play, only had 14 at bats. But you wound up like there are people in the organization, Steve, that kind of compare these two guys to each other. I even got that from a source um, where Mountcastle's going to wind up on a corner, and you hope he's kind of a Trey Mancini kind of guy. That's a comp you wouldn't think from a low-A shortstop to a triple-A slash big league first baseman, but um, they seem like they're more similar than, than uh, they might seem on the surface. Well, exactly. I mean, I've, I've also had people compare, call Mountcastle like a poor man Cisco type, uh, huh. except he's obviously a right-handed hitter to chance is a left. Uh, you know, in, in other words, uh, they think he'll hit for a high average. He's got above-average plate discipline. He's got a mature approach. They, they see him make adjustments within games, even within attacks, things that you don't usually see out of 1920. And they they see definitely the chance for future power. And they really think uh, there are people who will say, if this kid reaches the ceiling, it's going to be middle of the order hitter. <clears throat> and then it's going to be a matter of the position because everybody says he's not going to be a shortstop. Um, and the Orioles, in my opinion, I don't know if it's their opinion, but if it's mine, if next year, when he starts, I would assume it's single A Frederick in the Carolina League. He should be playing not shortstop, whether it's left field, uh, which is really the, what's left, because there are people who he doesn't have the arm for third or short, and he's probably not has the, the agility to turn double plays at second. So left field is it. And so if that's where he's going to play, and it looks like it is, why not have him start doing it now? It, it was, Steve. I mean, it was. I, I don't want to say funny, but it was something where when I talked to scouts, when I talked to managers in the South Atlantic League they, who like Mountcastle, felt like the first thing out of their mouth was, I can't, really was, I can't believe this guy is playing shortstop because the arm is just, it's not just not suitable for short, shortstop. It's so far from being suitable for shortstop that it almost overrode everything else you saw with him. I mean, it is like if he goes to left field, It'll always be in some ways for him. I have to imagine, you know, he 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 seemed to handle it pretty well. The fact he knew he didn't have a great arm, but it is something where it takes a lot of pressure off of him defensively because he had a lot of stuff he had to do just to try to reasonably adequately play shortstop, didn't he? I think so, and I think it's a great point, JJ, because we think there's pressure on a player switching positions, and there is to a degree, uh, and but. Uh, this is a less stressful position, much less stressful than shortstop and the demands on that. So maybe if and when they do move him, uh, maybe it will be 
uh, less of a burden, and maybe the bat will really take off because now, sure, he's got to learn a position he hasn't played a lot, but it's different. It's less stressful. Uh, there's less uh, things you're going to be doing in the game. He's not going to be involved with as many plays, and maybe then the bat will really take off. But so he's still really on the radar. I mean, he's got a uh, you know looks right next, right now looks like he's got the plus bat tool and the power, and now they got to find a defense and. You know, the Orioles like to build value with these players because they've traded many minor leaguers, as we know, but they just can't build value with him at shortstop. But in left field, they might be able to. Yeah, it's just hard to – I mean, the, the grade we gave him was a, basically a 30 arm. I mean, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to get granular between a 30 and a 40. Uh, I know there's some people who are going to put a 35 on it. You know, we try to avoid that ourselves. Um, but it's a well below average arm for any position, not just shortstop. So – you know, uh, I like to talk about this. You know, if you hit, you're going to get promoted. And that guy hits. He he makes a lot. He makes a pretty high rate of contact. Twenty percent strikeout, nineteen percent strikeout rate. Doesn't walk a lot, but he makes a lot of hard contact and and can hit. Trey Mancini's strikeout rate went up. But he didn't hit three fifty like he did in the Eastern League last year. But you know, that's kind of hard to repeat. Um, but yeah, obviously impressed in the big leagues. Steve, is there a spot for this guy considering? Um, you know, Chris Davis is pretty locked up and, you know, the, the, I would imagine the Orioles want to bring back Mark Trumbo considering he hit 47 home runs last year. Um, and that was, you know, kind of a, a big deal for them. Uh, does Mancini really only factor into the big league lineup if Trumbo goes elsewhere? He, he might definitely be linked with that, John, because, you know, they have two, uh, big bats who are probably more DH types, uh, if Trumbo can't play first either because Davis is there, then he's more DH, and so is Pedro Alvarez. So if one or both leave, even though if they one bats left, one right, that opens some at bats for Trey Mancini. And I think he really opened some eyes. I think the organization was high on him, but I think when he came up in the midst of a pennant race and started hitting the ball out of the park every night, even in the smallest of sample sizes, uh, really it was just a few at bats. It, it showed the Orioles something, that the, this kid's a pretty high-character kid. Uh, the pressure of his first call-up and playing in a pennant race didn't phase him. And Buck Walters made the point numerous times that it's much easier to hit the ball out of their ballpark in Baltimore than the one he was in in Norfolk. And some, some kids come up from AAA and they're like, wow, I hit that ball and it actually went out. I hit that last week and it was caught on the warning track, you know. <laughs> and so... Uh, and that, you know, in a kid's mindset and confidence, that's a big difference when he strikes a ball really well in Norfolk and it doesn't go out and he strikes that same ball in Baltimore and it's 20 feet over the wall. Uh, so I think we saw that with Trey and opened a lot of eyes. His defense is solid, but the Orioles don't seem to want to move Chris Davis to the outfield. That's another option they had. He's solid out there. He's better than Trumbo. Um, and they could play Chris Davis in right, and then first base is open for someone else, but they don't seem to want to do that. But long story short to your question, yeah, what happens with these signings is probably going to impact Mancini's chance to make the opening day roster. And it's going to be, uh, to me it's fascinating because the guy's done what you want him to do at the upper levels. I guess the other question is he doesn't seem like he's quite as athletic as like a Steve Pierce or even a Chris Davis, he's, he's, he, he hasn't played much outfield, if at all, in the minor leagues, correct? I mean, he really hasn't shown that he can play, like, say, a left field, has he? He has not, and, um, but he's open to trying it. And that, that's, I think, another spot where the Orioles are with Mancini. When, when, the, when Davis 
uh, re-upped for seven years. Then the question became, well, you've got Christian Walker and Trey Mancini. What's going to go on here? Well, Walker was deemed to be the player a little more athletic, maybe more suited to uh, take a shot at left. So they played him in left field all year at AAA. Uh, I heard he was uh, playable is the word that was used. In other words, he's certainly not a plus defender. He's not terrible. He was playable is the, the, the adjective I got yeah. on Walker's defense. So now they have to find out, uh, and I think in, trip, in uh, spring they will take a look at Trey with some outfield. And he looks a little more athletic than you might think. Um, he actually probably looked, just looks more athletic than Walker, but team officials felt Walker was more suited to try it. Mancini, I think, is either either Notre Dame or maybe in summer ball has, has tinkled, uh, you know, tinkered with a little outfield. So we, we may see him more out there. Yeah, he hasn't done it as a pro yet, so um, kind of kind of surprising to me that he hasn't done it at all. But like you said, they, they chose Christian Walker to try that out with. So... Uh, last one or two for me. I did want to ask you about the the uh, fall league contingent for the O's. Uh, you've got uh, Adrian Marin out there. You got uh, I guess the, the highlights for me are DJ Stewart, uh, the 2015 first rounder, um, Jesus Lirizano or Lorenzo, who's kind of a nice find this year. I guess he's kind of come home from the fall league, and then Stephen Crichton, who's really made a leap forward this year and has thrown well out in the fall league. One of the bigger arms. In the organization, uh, who's, who's, who are you following most closely out there in the fall league uh, uh, from the Orioles organization? Well, you know, um, Tanner Scott they used as a starter, but he's not he's not becoming a starter. That was simply a way to get a few more innings and get a bullpen session in to get extra work. And the Orioles have their short season pitching coach Justin Lord out there working with them. And I know Brian Graham, I think, is out there now, and even Dan Duquette might. After the, after the GM meetings, take a look. So those relievers, yeah, uh, Yacobonis uh, and Crichton are two guys that, with really good arms that they like. Yacobonis uh, has not had good stats out there. Crichton has thrown pretty well. Lorenzo, I think it was a mild back injury, so they shut him down. They think it's minor. They really wanted to see how he would do out there to help them determine whether they're going to protect him. And uh, this the young Dominican kid, Lorenzo, but then he got hurt, so they had to send in Parker Bridwell to replace him. DJ Stewart, uh, mixed reviews at his first home run yesterday. I don't think the Orioles expected him to set the world on fire there, but but they they knew it would be a great experience. And I, you know, the thing about Stewart this year, we've talked so much about his low crouch, but what I've been told really made an impact for him during the year. He transitioned from an open stance, which he used at Delmarva to more of a closed stance than Frederick. And, and I saw one or two at-bats online from the AFL, and you can see his stance is a little closed now. Yeah. It wasn't before. And the scouts have told me, felt, you know, the back path is better now. It's helping him drive the ball the other way better. It's just uh, it's not so much the up and down of the crouch because he's found the more upright level, but now he's tinkered with it with it open and closed. Right. And I've heard people with the Orioles suggest that if he's open to it, they've got some more tinkering suggestions for next year down the road. And so I think they still think D.J. Stewart, there's some untapped potential there that obviously was seen at Florida State, which hasn't consistently been seen in Baltimore. And, um, uh, you know, he's still on their radar very much as a high pick, and uh, the defense has been pretty average uh, at that, so he doesn't have a big arm. But the bat still, there's some potential there. Just, just, it just has so surprised me that um, 
you know, his biggest, you know, his best statistical category. I'm not surprised that he walks a lot, you know, um, 377 on base for the year. I think he led the organization and walks with 78. But the stolen bases, that he stole 26 bags, I mean, <laughs> he just certainly seems like, you know, you. I guess the thing is that I would imagine that Orioles fans were hoping they were getting a Kyle Schwarber type or a, a Michael Conforto type. He's just hasn't. He's just not that kind of polished hitter. I mean, he's clearly got more adjustments to make, it looks like. No, I think so. And, you know, I think um, when it comes to his speed, you hear people say he has good speed for a stocky guy. Right. But that doesn't mean good speed compared to others who have plus speed. So um, the, the interesting thing about DJ Stewart, let's take Austin Hayes, who they drafted this year out of Jacksonville. Yeah. You have people start talking about Austin Hayes, plus arm, he's probably a plus defender, he might even have the plus bat. And I said to one scout, it sounds like Austin Hayes, if you grade his tools across the board, grades out higher than DJ Stewart. And they were like, you're probably right. And I'm like, how does one guy get drafted so much higher than the other? And they're like, well, you know, different strengths in the draft from different years, they might have something to do with it. And they thought they didn't think they would get Hayes where they did. They were actually very pleased to get him where they did. And they're, uh, so and, they're anyway, getting back to Stewart, and they're both Jacksonville guys. They're both Jacksonville guys, both Jacksonville prep right. guys. Yeah. So it's the same guys who saw them. Now, you know, so that's the, that's the amazing part is they were both Jacksonville prep kids and then, you know, played down on Interstate 10 from each other. I mean, you know, Hayes drafted one year after Stewart. But really, you really do wonder when you see that, and it's so obvious in your report, Austin Hayes number seven, DJ Stewart's not in the top ten, that Austin Hayes is the more well-rounded player who hit more home runs in college, and D.J. Stewart played at a ballpark that, you know, Florida State guys, past and present, have put up some pretty gaudy numbers in uh, Dick Hauser Stadium. It's a hitter's park, especially for left-handed hitters. Um, so it's a little, it is still kind of weird to me that D.J. Stewart went in the first round. It is, uh, and I liked him in college, but I saw him struggle with the college national team, and, uh, you know, Buck's buddy uh, Dick, Rick Down was right there. He was an assistant hitting coach there the first couple of weeks of that summer with the collegiate national team, and I didn't see anything special in DJ Stewart. I mean, I, I liked him. Great kid. I do, I do love the personality. Um, I think he's a fun guy to have around. Um, I do expect that there's enough hitting ability that he will – it wouldn't surprise me if he wound up having a career like where his best year is kind of like what we saw out of uh, the Korean left fielder, Kim. I forget his first name. For yeah. Hung Su, who was an on-base oriented left fielder, that might be what he winds up being, just kind of not what you might expect looking at him and looking at that burly, uh, very strong body. So he's he's intriguing to me as uh, he's as intriguing to me as any of their prospects going forward. If he makes a big leap forward in, in 2017, where he starts hitting for some power to go with that plate discipline uh, and some of those stolen bases, then all of a sudden you're looking at a guy who might be. Um, a, a future regular. Right now, it's harder to harder to peg him that way. Who who's a guy? Oh, for, is. Yeah, go he ahead. Drop down the list. As you guys know, DJ Stewart dropped down the list this year because you know we just wasn't getting the production. And then finally, they made an unusual move. You don't see this often. The player hit 230 in the South Atlantic League gets moved to the Carolina League. But I think they just wanted him to get a fresh start in a new league. They challenged him. They really liked the hitting coach there. Uh, it's a Frederick and Keith Bodie who managed there. It's a really good hitting background, so they could put two eyes on him. Um, and, so, you know, he may, he, he finally got it going. And so I think it, it sends him with momentum into 2017. 
And the, the makeup and the character of this kid is really high. I've had several Oriole people tell me, hey, Steve, he's not hitting much, but we're really rooting for this kid. He's a great kid. He works hard. He wants to be good. And we want him to be good. I mean, we really like this guy. So we hope that he gets it going. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a an X factor. One of the reasons why he was drafted high. I mean, uh, he did perform at Florida State, and then I think that he's a high energy, uh, always smiling, great guy in the clubhouse. Uh, last for me, Steve. Uh, I don't know if JJ has any questions for you, but uh, one of the organization uh, strengths seems to be catcher. Uh, obviously, Chan Cisco at the top of this. Um, what's your take on Cisco's defense? It's kind of the most obvious question. I'm saving that for last. And do, do the Orioles have any hopes? Uh, for the guys a little bit further down the list, the Alex Murphys or the Yerman Mercedes, uh, that they could be future backups. And then this is an organization that has developed. You know, Caleb Joseph had, had a rough 2016, but did help the club in 2015 and has this obvious Matt Weeders question of uh, should he stay or should he go uh, this offseason after taking the qualifying offer last year. Uh, is Cisco ready uh, defensively if, if needed? to replace Matt Wieters in uh, 2017? And are the other guys potential future backups to Chan Sisko? I My sense of it from what I hear is Sisko is not ready to be an opening day starting catcher 2017. But I think they really felt the progress was really strong this year. There were pitchers at Bowie that told me this kid's much more communicative. He's, he's calling pitches better. He understands the reading backs and things that maybe we didn't see from him on the lower levels he's starting to get. And pitchers told me when he finally got to double-A, which was late last year, and he caught when they won the Eastern League title, um, that the veteran pitchers really helped cool this kid. Hey, I'm, I need to bounce that curveball on 0-2, and I need to know you're going to block it. You know, we kind of man on second base, third base here. And so just little things that started to come together for him. And so if he can take that next step beyond where he's at, then I think maybe at a half season into 2017, they'll be ready to take a look at him, maybe even sooner. Beyond that, this catcher, Austin Wins, who's in the AFL, he's kind of become the next Jonah Hyman. By that, I mean he's probably the best defensive minor league Oriole catcher. Uh, they like his defense a lot. If you notice, you look at minor league box scores, as I do, he'll catch some of the top prospects. They just like Austin Wins. Now, whether and, he, and he's hitting a little bit in the AFL right now, too. So he's someone to watch. Uh, for his defense. The other guys, there there are knocks on their defense. Mercedes had a big, big year offensively, as we know, kind of a fresh start in the order organization, but his defense, is, it needs a whole lot of work. Um, Alex Murphy, he's kind of a first baseman catcher now. They still have him back there, and they really like his bat, but his uh, throwing mechanic, there's some issues they're trying to work through. So, uh, long story short again here, best defensive minor league catcher, from what I've been told, is Austin Wins. Um, and Cisco's not at wins level defensively, um, but so he's a guy to watch simply because of the defense. And these other guys, uh, they had improved their defense. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to find catching. Uh, the Orioles have had one for better part of eight years now uh, with Matt Wieters, and uh, we'll see if they have another one in Chan Cisco. He was an easy choice for the number one prospect in the organization. Steve, you were an easy choice for the uh, subject of today's podcast. When we're talking Orioles, uh, we know where we want to go, and uh, really appreciate you. Uh, you know, contributing with the podcast, but also, of course, contributing to the handbook uh, the last couple of years. Like I told you on the phone when uh, you were filing the last month, I mean, it seems like forever ago, but uh, 
you know, the doing the top 30 is uh, it is hard, but it, it, it's fun when you know the players and this is what your third year doing it. Like it's a little bit more fun every year, doesn't it? It does. And I told my friends, take the, take the toughest term paper you ever did in college and multiply it by about 10 or 20. <laughs> and that's what this project is, man, because, you know, you can spend a day and you guys have all done this talking to four or five people and you record the conversation and you have three hours on audio and they're like, Oh my God, now I got to go through and listen to that and make <laughs> notes off that. So, I mean, it's just, you got to dig in and sit down and dig in and, and just pour over and take a lot of time. And then you listen to these interviews and you, and then you go back and you say, Oh wow, I had that guy 12. That's no way. After what I heard today, he's got to drop. And this other guy, oh man, he's got to go way up now. That's what I heard. Yeah. So it's it's a rewarding process to do, and for me, it covers the minors so heavily in my in my job at MassSports.com. It gives me a lot of great insights, and so I am always proud to have my name connected to anything with Baseball America, and honored you guys asked me because you're the best at what you do. That was true five, ten, fifteen years ago. It's still true today. There are a lot of great people out there that do. Well, you kind of what you guys do, but I don't think anybody does it as well. So i uh, always uh, proud to be involved with this project. Well, I appreciate it, Steve. Thanks for making the time with us today, and uh, we'll talk to you down the line. Thanks again. All right, you guys. Enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to uh, you for the download. Uh, you know, again, we've got uh, – we will uh, have this podcast up today, Thursday. Uh, we probably need to record one for tomorrow on Veterans Day. I will be traveling um, for the weekend. Um, Yankees with Josh Norris, who did our Yankees uh, top ten. That makes sense. Um, so we're, one to have the Yankees for everyone to mull over. You know, whether you're traveling or whatever over the weekend, you'll have plenty of time to. That's a good one. That makes sense. And then we have Red Sox next week in the American League Central and West. So tons of content in the off season at Baseball America. As we wrap up our books, of course, also you can go to store.baseballamerica.com and uh, pre-order the uh, almanac. We're wrapping up the almanac this weekend as well, and the prospect handbook. Uh, New York Times sports list best-selling prospect handbook last year. Uh, great time to pre-order that now. So great time to get involved at Baseball America. And thanks again for the download. So for J.J. Cooper, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. This concludes our program. Want more in-depth baseball coverage? Be a better fan. Visit BaseballAmerica.com to get more comprehensive baseball coverage. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.